Chapter Thirteen of Niels Klim's Journey Under the Ground. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Chapter Thirteen, The Beginning of the Fifth Monarchy. From this time, all my exertions were directed to the accomplishment of a radical reform throughout the country. I commenced by improving their mode of warfare, in exercising the young men in riding, fencing, and shooting. My constant labor was rewarded so well, that in a short time, I exhibited before the emperor six thousand horsemen. At this period, the Tanaquites were preparing for a new attack upon the Quamites, on account of the refusal of this latter people to pay a yearly tribute, which had been several times demanded, and is often denied. I went, at the emperor's desire, with my cavalry and some footmen to meet the invaders. To the infantry I gave javelins and arrows, that they might fight their enemies at a distance, for the Quamites had formerly used only short swords or poniards, and consequently were obliged to meet in close combat their frightful foes, the Tanaquites, who, excelling them greatly in personal strength, had great advantage over them. Hearing that the enemy were approaching the boundary, as commander-in-chief, I repaired instantly towards them. On meeting the invaders, I caused the footmen to attack them with their javelins. This put them into panic and flight, and determined the fate of the day. The enemy suffered a terrible defeat, and the Tanaquitic leader, with twenty other noble tigers, were taken prisoners alive and carried in triumph to Quama. It is not possible to describe the general and tumultuous joy that filled the whole country for this glorious victory, because in former years the Quamites had generally been obliged to lay down their arms. The emperor commanded the prisoners to be immediately executed, according to old custom. But considering this a horrible custom, I persuaded him to respite them, and put them in prison for further deliberation. I had observed that this land was very rich in saltpeter, and had collected a considerable quantity for the purpose of making powder. This intention I had kept secret, however, from all except the emperor, whose permission I needed to establish manufactories for rifles and other guns. With the aid of these I hoped in a short time to subdue all the enemies of the empire. When I had finished some hundred rifles, and prepared balls suitable for them, I made a trial of my project to the astonishment of all. A certain number of soldiers were selected to learn this military art, and were exercised in the management of the guns. When this body of soldiers had become accustomed to the use of these new engines of war, and could employ them effectively, a review was held, after which the emperor proclaimed me Jacal, that is, Generalissimo, over the whole army. While all these matters were pending, I had entered into an intimate friendship with the brave leader of the Tanaquites, the imprisoned Tomopoloko, with whom I held frequent and interesting conversations, with the object of learning the constitution, character, and customs of his nation. I could not but observe, to my great astonishment, that they were a witty, moral, and enlightened people, and that the sciences were earnestly and effectively cultivated by them. The chief told me, that toward the east were a valorous people against whose attacks the Tanaquites were obliged to keep themselves always prepared. The inhabitants of that country, he added, were small and in reality much inferior in bodily strength to those of the Tanaquis, 
but being of superior acuteness and agility, an excellent bowman, they had in fact often forced the Tanaquites to sue for peace. I soon came to know that this formidable nation consisted of cats, and that they had distinguished themselves among all the nations under the firmament for their rational judgment and political acumen. It provoked and pained me not a little that skillfulness, the sciences, and polite manners should be universally among the animals of the subterranean world, while only real human beings, namely the Quamites, were sunk to the profoundest depths of uncultivated barbarism. I consoled myself, however, in the hope that, through my endeavors, this shame would soon cease, and the Quamites would recover that dominion which belonged to them as men over all the animals. Since their last defeat, the Tanaquites kept very quiet for a long time, but when they found out the nature and condition of our cavalry, when they discovered that these centaurs, who had frightened them so terribly at first, were nothing in reality but tamed horses with men seated upon them, they took courage and armed new troops against the Quamites under the command of their king. Their whole army consisted of twenty thousand tigers, all veteran soldiers, heroes of many hard-fought fields, except two regiments of new recruits. These hastily collected warriors were, however, more formidable in name and numbers than in service. Already sure of victory, they fell at once upon Quama. I immediately ordered against them twelve thousand infantry, among whom were six hundred musketeers, and four thousand horsemen. As I had not the slightest doubt of a fortunate termination to this expedition, I requested the emperor to take command of it, and thus reap the honor of the victory. By this appearance of modesty, I lost no respect, for the whole army still considered me the true leader. I first directed my cavalry against the enemy, but these were resisted with so much vigor that the side of victory was for a long time doubtful. At the critical moment, when triumph was vacillating between the two powers, I detached my musketeers from the main body and advanced upon the foe. The Tanaquites were much astonished at the first shots, for they could not conceive whence came the thunder and lightning, but when they saw the mournful effects of our continued volleys, they became terrified. At the first discharge fell about two hundred tigers, among which were two chaplains, who were shot down while encouraging the soldiers to bravery. When I observed the panic among the enemy, I commanded a second discharge, whose results were more fatal than the former. Their king himself was shot, then the Tanaquites took to flight. Our cavalry followed them, and cut down so many of the flying multitude, that those in the rear could not proceed from the huge piles of slain that covered the way. When the battle was over, we counted the killed of the enemy, and found them to be thirteen thousand. Our own loss was comparatively very slight. The victorious army marched into the kingdom of Tanaqui, and encamped before its capital. The general terror had meanwhile increased so much that the magistrates submissively met the conquerors and delivered the keys of the city. The capital surrendering, the whole country soon followed its example. The disregard and contempt in which the Quamites had to this time been held were changed to admiration and fear. The empire, with the addition of the newly conquered kingdom, was extended to twice its former size. The glory of these actions was with one voice ascribed to my superior knowledge and untiring industry, and the esteem which had been long cherished for me 
now passed over to a reverent and divine worship. This period of general peace and exultation I thought a fitting time to advance the civilization and refinement of the Quamites, and as a practical commencement to this great work, I ordered the Royal Tanaquitic Library to be moved to Quama. My curiosity to become acquainted with this library had been at first excited by the imprisoned leader Tomopoloko, who told me that among its manuscripts was one whose author had been up to our globe, in which history of his travels he had described several of its kingdoms, particularly those of Europe. The Tanaquites had seized this manuscript during one of their predatory excursions into a distant land, but as the author had concealed his name, they knew not what countryman he was, nor in what manner he had passed up through the ground. The quaint title of this book was Tanian's Travels Above Ground, being a description of the kingdoms and countries there, especially those of Europe. From the antiquity of this work, together with its great popularity, it had become so ragged that what I was most anxious to learn, namely, the narration of the author's journey to our earth and his return, was most unfortunately lost. Here is the contents of this singular manuscript, such as I found it. Fragments of Tanian's Diary, kept on a voyage above ground. Translated by His Excellency, Monsieur Tomopoloko, General-in-Chief in the service of His Tanaquitic Majesty. This land, Germany, was called the Roman Empire, but it has been an empty title since the Roman monarchy was demolished several centuries since. The language of this land is not easy to understand, on account of its perverted style. For, what in other languages is placed before, in this comes after, so that the meaning cannot be had before a whole page is read through. The form of government is very inconsistent. Some think they have a regent, and yet have none. It should be an empire, yet it is divided into several duchies, each of which has its own government, and often engages in a formal war with its neighbor. The whole land is called holy, though there is not to be found in it the least trace of piety. The regent, or more correctly the unregent, who bears the name of emperor, is denominated the continual augmenter of his country, although he not seldom diminishes it. Invincible, notwithstanding he is often slain, sometimes by the French, sometimes by the Turks. One has no less reason to wonder at the people's rights and liberties, but although they have many rights, they are forbidden to use them. Innumerable commentaries have been written upon the German constitution, but notwithstanding this, they have made no advance because... The capital of this country, France, is called Paris, and is very large, and may in a certain degree be considered the capital of all Europe, for it exercises a peculiar law-giving power over the whole continent. It has, for example, the exclusive right to prescribe the universal mode of dress and living, and no style of dress, however inconvenient or ridiculous, may be controverted after the Parisians have once established it. How or when they obtained this prescriptive right is unknown to me. I observed, however, that this dominion did not extend to other things, for the other nations often make war with the French, and not seldom force them to sue for peace on very hard terms. But subservience in dress and living nevertheless continues. In quickness of judgment, inquisitiveness after news, and fruitfulness of discovery, 
The French are very much like the Martinians. From Bologna we went to Rome. This latter city is governed by a priest who is held to be the mightiest of the kings and rulers of Europe, although his possessions may be traveled through in one day. Beyond all other regents, who only have supremacy over their subjects' lives and goods, he can govern souls. The Europeans generally believe that this priest has in his possession the keys of heaven. I was very curious to see these keys, but all my endeavors were in vain. His power, not only over his own subjects, but the whole human race, consists principally in that he can absolve those whom God condemns, and condemn those who God absolves, an immense authority which the inhabitants of our subterranean world seriously believe is not becoming to any mortal man. But it is an easy matter to induce the Europeans to credit the most unreasonable assertions, and submit to the most high-handed assumptions, notwithstanding they consider themselves alone sensible and enlightened, and, puffed up with their own foolish conceits, look contemptuously upon all other nations whom they call barbarous. I will not by any means defend our subterranean manners and inquisitions. My purpose simply is to examine those of the Europeans and to show how little claim these people have to find fault with other nations. It is customary in some parts of Europe to powder the hair and clothes with ground and sifted corn, the same which nature has produced for the nourishment of man. This flour is called hair powder. It is combed out with great care at night, preparatory to a fresh sprinkling in the morning. There is another custom with them, which did not appear less ridiculous to me. They have certain coverings for the head, called hats, made ostensibly to protect the head from the weather, but which, instead of being used for this very reasonable purpose, are generally worn under the arm, even in the winter. This seemed as foolish to me, as with the instance of one walking through the city with his cloak or breeches in his hand, thus exposing his body, which these should cover, to the severity of the weather. The doctrines of European religion are excellent and consistent with sound reason. In their books of moral law they are commanded to read the Christian precepts often, to search into their true meaning, and are advised to be indulgent with the weak and erring. Nevertheless, should any understand one or another doctrine of these books in any but the established sense, they would be imprisoned, lashed, yes, and even burned for their want of judgment. This seemed to me the same case as if one should be punished for a blemish in sight, through which he saw that object square which others believed to be round. I was told that some thousand people had been executed by hanging or burning for their originality of thought. In most cities and villages are to be found certain persons standing in high places who animadvert severely upon the sins of others, which they themselves commit daily. This seemed to me as sensible as the preaching of temperance by a drunkard. In the larger towns, it is almost generally the fashion to invite one's guests, immediately after meals, to imbibe a kind of sup made from burnt beans which they call coffee. To the places where this is drunk, they are drawn in a great box on four wheels, by two very strong animals, for the higher classes of European hold it to be very indecent to move about on their feet. On the first day of the year, the Europeans are attacked by a certain disease, which we subterraneans know nothing of. The symptoms of this malady are a peculiar disturbance of the mind and agitation of the head. 
Its effects are that none can remain on that day five minutes in one place. They run furiously from one house to another, with no appreciable reason. This disease continues with many even fourteen days, until at last they become weary of their eternal gadding, check themselves, and regain their former health. In France, Italy, and Spain, the people lose their reason for some weeks in the winter season. This delirium is moderated by strewing ashes on the forehead of the sufferers. In the northern parts of Europe, to which this disease sometimes extends, and where the ashes have no power, nature is left to work the cure. It is the custom with most Europeans to enter into a solemn compact with God in the presence of witnesses three or four times a year, which they invariably and immediately break. This compact is called communion, and seems to have been established only to show that the Europeans are used to break their promises several times each year. They confess their sins and implore the mercy of God in certain melodies accompanied by instrumental music. As the magnitude of their sins increases, their music becomes louder. Thus, fluters, trumpeters, and drummers are favorite helpers to devotion. Almost all the nations of Europe are obliged to acknowledge and believe in the doctrines which are contained in a certain holy book. At the South, the reading of this book is entirely forbidden, so that the people are forced to credit what they dare not read. In these same regions, it is likewise austerely forbidden to worship God, except in a language incomprehensible to the people, so that only those prayers are held to be lawful and pleasing to God, which are uttered from memory without comprehension. The learned controversies which occupy the European academies consist in the discussion of matters, the development of which is productive of no benefit, and in the examination of phenomena, the nature of which is beyond the reach of the human mind. The most serious study of a European scholar is the consideration of a pair of old boots, the slippers, necklaces, and gowns of a race long extinct. Of the sciences, both worldly and divine, none judge for themselves, but subscribe blindly to the opinions of a few. The decisions of these, when once established, they cling to, like oysters to the rocks. They select a few from their number who they call wise, and credit them implicitly. Now there would be nothing to object against this, could raw and ignorant people decide in this case, but to decide concerning wisdom requires, methink, a certain degree of sapience in the judge. In the southern countries, certain cakes are carried about, which the priests set up for gods. The most curious part of this matter is, the bakers themselves, while the dough yet cleaves to their fingers, will swear that these cakes have created heaven and earth. The English prefer their liberty to all else, and are not slaves except to their wives. Today they reject that religion which yesterday they professed. I ascribe this fickleness to the situation of their country. They are islanders and seamen, and probably become affected by the variable element that surrounds them. They inquire very often after each other's health, so that one would suppose them to be all doctors. But the question, how do you do, is merely a form of speech a sound without the slightest signification. Towards the north is a republic consisting of seven provinces. These are called united, notwithstanding there is not to be found the least trace of union among them. The mob boast of their power, and insist upon their right to dispose of state affairs. But nowhere is the commonality more excluded from such manners. 
the whole government being in the hands of some few families. The inhabitants of this republic heap up great riches with anxious and unwearied vigilance, which, however, they do not enjoy. Their purses are always full, their stomachs always empty. One would almost believe they lived on smoke, which they continually suck through tubes or pipes made of clay. It must nevertheless be confessed that these people surpass all others in cleanliness, for they wash everything but their hands. Every land has its own laws and customs, which are usually opposed to each other. For example, by law the wife is subject to the husband. By custom, the husband is ruled by the wife. In Europe, the superfluous members of society only are respected. These devour not only the fruits of the land, but the land itself. The cultivators of the soil, who feed these gorges, are degraded for their industry and despised for their usefulness. The prevalence of vice and crime in Europe may perhaps be fairly inferred from the great number of gallows and scaffolds to be seen everywhere. Each town has its own executioner. I must, for justice' sake, clear England from this stigma. I believe there are no public murderers in that country. The inhabitants hang themselves. I have a kind of suspicion that the Europeans are cannibals, for they shut large flocks of healthful and strong persons in certain enclosures called cloisters for the purpose of making them fat and smooth. This object seldom fails, as these prisoners, free from all labor and care, have nothing to do but enjoy themselves in these gardens of pleasure. Europeans commonly drink water in the morning to cool their stomachs. This object accomplished, they drink brandy to heat them up again. In Europe are two principal sects in religion, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant. The Protestants worship but one god, the Catholics several. Each city and village with these has its appropriate god or goddess. All these deities are created by the Pope, or superior priest at Rome, who, on his part, is chosen by certain other priests called cardinals. The mighty power of these creators of the creator of the gods does not, as it would seem to an indifferent spectator, apparently alarm the people. The ancient inhabitants of Italy subdued the whole world and obeyed their wives. The present, on the contrary, abuse their wives, and submit to the whole world. The Europeans generally feed upon the same victuals with the subterraneans. The Spaniards alone live on the air. Commerce flourishes here or there. Many things are offered for sale in Europe, which with us are never objects of trade. Thus in Rome people sell heaven, in Switzerland themselves, and in unreadable, the crown, scepter, and throne are offered at public auction. In Spain, idleness is the true mark of a well-bred man, and the distinguishing proof of pure nobility is an aptitude to sleep. Among European writers, those are in the highest repute who change the natural order of words, making that which is in itself simple and distinct, intricate and incomprehensible. The class most noted for this abominable perversion of style is that of the poets. This singular removal of words is called poetry. The capability to puzzle is by no means the only requisite to become a true poet. One must be able to lie most terribly. A certain old poet named Homerus, who possessed both these qualities in an eminent degree, 
is styled the master, and is idolized with a kind of divine worship. He has had many imitators of his distortion of sentences and falsification of truth, but it is said none have yet reached his excellence. The cultivators of science purchase books in great quantities, not so much, I am told, for the sake of the contents, but for the antiqueness of style or elegance of binding. The learned and unlearned are distinguished from each other by different dresses and manners, but especially by different religions. The latter believe mostly in one god. The former worship many divinities, both male and female. Among the principal of these are Apollo, Minerva, and nine muses, besides many lesser whole and half-gods. The poets particularly implore their aid and hail them when they take a notion to rage. The learned are divided, according to their different studies, into the classes of philosophers, poets, grammarians, natural philosophers, metaphysicians, etc. A philosopher is a scientific tradesman, one who, for a certain price, sells prescriptions of self-denial, temperance, and poverty. He generally preaches the pains of wealth till he becomes rich himself, when he abandons the world for a comfortable and dignified retreat. The father of the philosophers, Seneca, is said to have collected royal wealth. A poet is one who makes a great stir with printed prattle, falsehood, and fury. Madness is the characteristic of the true poet. All those who express themselves with clearness, precision, and simplicity are deemed unworthy of the laurel wreath. The grammarians are a sort of military body who disturb the public peace. They are distinguished from all other warriors by dress and weapons. They wear black instead of colored uniforms, and wield pins rather than swords. They fight with as much obstinacy for letters and words as do the others for liberty and fatherland. A natural philosopher is one who searches into the bowels of the earth, studies the nature of animals, worms, and insects, and, in a word, is familiar with everything but himself. A metaphysician is a sort of philosopher, partly visionary and partly skeptical, who sees what is concealed from all others. He describes the being and unfolds the nature of souls and spirits, and knows both what is and what is not. From the acuteness of his sight, the metaphysician cannot discern what lies directly before his feet. I have thus briefly considered the condition of the learned republic in Europe. I could relate many other things, but I think I have given the reader a sufficient test by which he may judge how far the Europeans have a right to hold themselves preeminent for wisdom. The people above ground are exceedingly pious, and extraordinarily zealous in praying. Their prayers, however, do not arise from the impulses and emotions of their hearts, but are subdued to mere matters of form, directed by bells, clocks, or sundials. Their devotion is entirely mechanical, founded on external signs and old customs, rather than in sincere feeling. When I came to Italy, I fancied myself master over the whole country, for every one called himself my slave. I took a notion to test the extent of this humble obedience, and commanded my landlord to lend me his wife for a night. He became very angry, however, at this, and ordered me out of the house. In the north, there are many people who seek with great pains to obtain titles of offices which they do not hold, 
and many lose their reason in their eagerness to be on the right side. Furthermore, here I lost my patience. Inflamed to the utmost fury, I threw the book on the ground and assured Tomopoloko, who was by me, that it was the fiction of an unjust and choleric writer. When my first passion was cooled, I reviewed my sentence and finally concluded that the author of these travels, although unfair and untrue in many particulars, had nevertheless made some good points and happy reflections. I will now return to civil affairs. All our neighbors had kept very quiet for a long period, and during this peace I made every effort to constitute the government according to my own notions, and strengthen the army in numbers and efficiency. Suddenly, we received information that three warlike and formidable nations, namely the Arctonians, Kispiswinanians, and Alectorians, had united against the Quamites. The first named were bears gifted with reason and speech. The Kispiswinanians were a nation of large cats celebrated for their cunning and ferocity. The Alectorians were cocks armed with bows and arrows. These arrows with poison tips were cast with wonderful precision, and their least touch was fatal. These three nations have been irritated by the uncommon progress of the Quamites, as well as by the fall of the Tanaquites. The allied powers send ambassadors to Quama to demand the liberty of the imprisoned Tanaquitans, and the cession of their land, with power to declare war should the same be denied. By my advice, they were immediately dismissed with the following answer. Since the Tanaquitians, violators of peace and alliance, have deserved the misery which they have brought upon themselves by their own folly and pride, His Majesty the Emperor is determined to defend to the utmost the possessions of a land conquered in a lawful war, in spite of the threats, and fearless of the strength of your unnatural alliance. In short time I had an army of 40,000 men ready for the coming war. Among these were 8,000 horsemen, and 2,000 riflemen. The emperor, old as he was, determined to follow this campaign. His eagerness and ambition were so great that neither his wife's representations nor mine were effective enough to induce him to abandon his intention. In this state of affairs, I was made somewhat uneasy from mistrust of the Tanaquations. I feared that, impatient of their unaccustomed slavery, they would take the first opportunity to throw off their yoke and go over to the enemy. I did not deceive myself, for immediately after the declaration of war, we heard that full 12,000 Tanaquitians, in complete armor, had marched for the enemy's encampments. Thus we were occupied at once with four mighty foes. In the beginning of the month Killian, we commenced our march. From a spy we learnt that the united troops were already besieging the Fort Seabol in Tanaqui, on the borders of Kispasuaniania. On our arrival before the place, they abandoned the siege and prepared to meet us. The battle took place in a dale near the fort, and is to this day called the Sibolic Battle. The Arctonians, who formed their left wing, made great havoc among our cavalry, and supported by the rebellious Tanaquites, fell furiously on our right. A moment longer, and the fate of the conflict would have been determined. I detached a body of riflemen to engage the attention of the enemy, and allow the cavalry to recover. This movement was very effective. The men handled their guns well, 
and the enemy hastily abandoned their ground under a terrific shower of balls. Meanwhile, the Kispusianians on the other side pressed our infantry very hard. Six hundred Quamites were down, some killed, others mortally wounded. The recovered cavalry now rushed upon them impetuously, broke their ranks, and unresisted slaughtered them by thousands. The electorians who formed the reserve gave us the greatest trouble, for when our soldiers would attack them, they flew into the air, whence they shot on our heads their poisoned arrows. One of these entered the neck of the old emperor, while fighting vigorously in the midst of the field. He fell directly from his horse, was carried to his tent, and shortly after expired. The soldiers, having been kept in ignorance of their sovereign's death, the battle was continued until midnight. I soon found that our balls had but little effect upon our flying enemies, their motions being so rapid that our gunners could take no aim. Some new method must be devised to check them. A lucky expedient occurred to me. I ordered the guns to be loaded with small shot. These, scattering, brought them down in great flocks, and soon half of them were destroyed, the rest laid down their weapons and surrendered. The Arctonians and Kispusianians quickly followed their example, and their fortifications were surrendered to our hands. When all these things were fortunately brought to an end, behold then I called together the first among the people, the eldest, the heads of all the troops, to council in full assembly. Like the bubbling ocean's high-roaring billows, they all did stream to me and silently hear my speech. Noble, brave, and celebrated warriors, I doubt not that it is well known to the most of you that I oft-times advise His Majesty not to hazard his precious life in this desperate strife. But his natural courage and fearless heroism would not suffer him to remain at home while his brave people exposed themselves abroad. Oh, that he could have witnessed our glorious victory! Then our entrance into the imperial residence would have been a true triumph, and our joy over so many noble deeds would have been perfect not as now, mingled with tormenting sorrow. I can no longer conceal from you the mournful event which has given each one of us a greater wound than could all the arrows of the enemy. Know then that our emperor, in the thickest of the battle, was struck by an unfortunate arrow, and soon after expired. Horrible event! What sorrow, what general mourning will the loss of this great king cause over the whole country? Yet, do not lose courage, the great hero has ceased to live in himself, but he is not dead to you. Your emperor lives again in two princes, true images of their great father, and heirs no less to his virtues than to his dignities. You have not changed your emperor, but only your emperor's name. Since the prince Tamuso, as the firstborn, receives the crown, I am from this moment, under his scepter, the leader of the army. Hail Tamuso, let us swear him allegiance, to him let us swear eternal loyalty, him let us all hereafter obey. End of chapter 13 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com